My name is Dr. Michaela Keegan Yadley, and I've spent the last 17 years of my career in school as a teacher and principal. I started the Dissect Ed podcast to help you by using my strengths of connecting and relating to bring amazing guests to you each week. We will cover a wide range of topics related to all aspects of and roles in education. My goal? For you to enjoy and feel successful in your role so we keep amazing teachers and leaders in schools. Thank you for all you do. Take care and enjoy. This podcast episode is brought to you by the 3D Printing Man. Get everything from custom food bowls for your pets to chore lists for your family in more than 15 vibrant colors, all custom designed. Visit his store on Etsy by searching the 3D Printing Man, all one word. Again, that's the 3D Printing Man on Etsy and get 10% off with the code DISSECTED. All right, happy Tuesday, everybody. Um, today we have an incredible guest with us. Um, his name is Mark Hirschberg, and he is the author of a book called The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Uh, really caught my attention, actually, uh, when, I, when I first learned of Mark. And I'm extremely thrilled that we have him today because the current season that we're in, we're exploring um, a lot of leadership skills, I think I would say, and how they apply right now and how they need to apply as we move forward uh, in education. So I'm actually going to turn it over to Mark because I think hearing from him, you'll be able to connect to him better than if I just explain him to you. So Mark, welcome uh, to Dissect Ed. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me on the show. You um, know, I, can you tell, yeah, tell us about yourself. I got here in a really interesting, non-direct fashion. Because when I graduated MIT, I had a couple technical degrees, and I started off as a software developer. Mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. But what I quickly realized is that to get there wasn't just about being the best technologist. Yes, I had to understand that. But there were a bunch of other skills I would need. Leadership, negotiating, team building, communication. And these were skills I was never taught, not in high school, not in college, not in grad school. So I had to develop them in myself. We didn't have as many resources. We didn't have great podcasts like this back then. So I began to work on myself. I quickly realized these are not just for executives. These skills are for everyone. I began to upskill my team. Now, shortly after I began doing this, MIT had gotten similar feedback from the companies who tend to hire our students. In surveys, they said, these are the skills they want to see, that team building, communication, leadership, but they can't find it. Not just in our students, but among anyone they're trying to hire. New grads, experienced grads, they just can't find these skills because they're not being taught. Yeah. So when I heard about this, I, I heard MIT was trying to put together a program. I reached out, I said, you know, I've got some content, can I help? And I helped create the class. And then they invited me to help teach, which I've been doing for the past 20 years. So in addition to being a CTO and building tech startups, I've also been teaching at MIT. I helped develop some courses at other universities as well, because I believe we have to get these skills into the educational system. So I've had this dual career, and ultimately that class led to the book, and now the book and the speaking and other things I do related to that. Yeah, excellent. And I mean, honestly, it caught my, you initially caught my attention for that exact reason. Um, my experience um, in education started off as a special educator at the high school level. Um, and, and through that role, I did a lot of transition work with students who were graduating who didn't um, indicate that college was their next step after high school. And so it wasn't, it didn't seem right to just say, oh, okay, well, as long as you get across that stage, bye, take your diploma, go figure it out. Um, we worked really, really hard uh, at the school where I was, um, I was teaching to connect students with uh, outside agencies in their, you know, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade year to, to learn some skills that they would need uh, for jobs they identified um, at the very basic level. So your, uh, so what you do and what you, what you wrote about caught my attention for that reason. Um, and then I began to think about what I've been doing for the past, you know, 10 years uh, in school leadership. And I thought, hmm, why haven't these skills been taught? And what has this led to in our workforce? 
uh, and even in the workforce that, you know, I oversee and supervise uh, and in the workforce where I have colleagues. Um, and so it started to take on a life of its own <laughs> and uh, your, your book and what you, what you work with and what you work, uh, what you work on started to pique my interest um, and apply to so many different aspects of education from the basic, why are we not teaching these skills in high school to what is that doing to our students when they do graduate? Like what is that setting them up for or not setting them up, not preparing them for? And then also, what does that mean for the people who are working right now, you know, who got their degrees maybe, you know, say five, six, 10 years ago? What does that mean? And what does that mean for the people who manage them? So uh, I figure, can we just start with, um, you know, in your opinion or in your research, why aren't, I, and I think what we call them actually, I mean, anybody listening to this podcast should be familiar with the, with the phrase 21st century skills. Because going back about 10 years ago, maybe even longer, 12 years ago, these were skills that some, I don't remember who said, who coined it, but 21st century skills were cooperation, collaboration, communication, um, technology, things that stu uh, students needed to be able to do and be proficient in, in order to graduate and then be successful in this connect, interconnected world that they were going to step into um, that looked different than the brick and mortar world that, um, you know, people in my, in my generation and, and older stepped into. Um, so we're talking about the same thing, but clearly something's still missing. So can you tell our audience, um, where are these skills and why are they not, in your opinion, being taught in say high school and into college? I've never had a great explanation why I've talked to people in the field of education. I've asked why, why do we teach what we teach? Why don't we teach other things? I usually get the, eh, I don't know. It's, this is how it's done. And here's what I've kind of gathered as I've looked at the history. It's that high school is a relatively modern invention. It goes back about 150 years. Mm -hmm. Before that, we learned everything on the farm. Boys learned from their dad how to plant crops and farm, and girls learned from their moms how to sew and cook and mm -hmm. do domestic chores, right? It's a very sexist time. When we industrialized, when we got people off of the farms into the factories and into the cities, we need a basic level of education. We need that reading, writing, arithmetic. Count how many screws are on the box read the sign that says, do not enter. So we had to create some basic level skills for the modern workforce. And that, as far as I can tell, is where high school comes from, is creating a modern workforce. Mm -hmm. We've expanded that. We've had to add things like civics. We would start to recognize things like, you know, people are traveling more circa 1960s, 1970s. Maybe we should add some language in there. More recently, we've said, oh, there's a need for STEM, we have to do more STEM, more engineering, or financial literacy, which people have been clamoring for for years, they said, oh, well, here's a specific skill. So people have looked and said, there's a specific lack of financial knowledge, let's address it. There's a lack of engineering knowledge, let's address it. The skills that we're talking about, leadership, communication, networking, networking, we've all heard about networking since we were kids. Everyone <laughs> says it's important. Wait, if it's really that important, why has no one taught to us? These skills aren't a very specific, almost vocational skill. It's not, oh, I'm going to be a professional networker or a professional leader. And so they fall between the cracks because we can't draw from do this class and then this is a direct outcome. If you learn financial literacy, you will reduce credit card debt. And so we haven't addressed it the way these other things are, are coming in. But even more generally, no one, as far as I can tell, has stepped back and said, wait, what is the purpose of modern primary education? Where is it going and what is it supposed to achieve other than maybe some basic literacy? I think we need to ask that question and then refocus given the outcome. And it's that concept of backward mapping right, is something that, <laughs> I mean, we should be so familiar with and we should really be um, very proficient at, uh, yet it seems like that maybe that concept is being, uh, 
employed as like the reason for why we have the things that we have, like the common core standards um, and some other uh, STEM, uh, STEM, STEM, increased STEM opportunities, because that's where uh, there are a lot of jobs um, and there's a, there's a big need. Um, But something sometimes isn't translating. Um, Like you said, the leadership, communication, marketing, things that we know students need to be able to do or work I should say the in the workforce those skills are needed um in every job but yet we struggle to figure out how to measure them and how to measure and assess the degree to which they're being taught and therefore we struggle to figure out how they should be taught in schools in a company the investors demand a certain level of returns So the company says, well, let's figure out what the customers want and make sure we're providing it. Now, in this case, the investors are the parents and students. We literally talk about investing in your education. And they're the ones putting the time and money in to say, okay, well, I want this output of a student who can go on and have a successful career and a good life. The product produced by the schools are the students who then need to go off and get careers or go to colleges. And so the questions we should be asking, I know schools do ask you, well, how many of our students go to schools or maybe what percentage go to a certain level of school? Mm -hmm. But we really need to look at that in different ways. And by the way, I don't think college is right for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that might not be the metric, but that's become the gold standard is typically the percentage going on to college. Mm -hmm. And I'll note, colleges are not any better at this. Colleges, (laughs) they have a 900-year-old history. They've got a lot more baggage with them. And the problem at the university system, it's run by professors. Now, I like professors. I work with them all the time. But they don't know anything about the real world. Mm. If you think about what happens when you go off and you say, well, I want to be a marketing major. Well, there's a bunch of marketing professors. They're the ones with the deep knowledge of marketing. And they said, "Okay, well, if you want to be a marketing major, we've determined here are the classes you have to take. These intro classes, some intermediate, take a few advanced classes. Oh, the school's going to make you take a math, a history, a few other things. If you do all that, you get a degree. And really, the only thing that degree says is that you have acquired a certain level of marketing knowledge. Mm. It does not say you're a good marketer. It does not say you're a good employee. And this was fine when college really boomed and became mainstream in the U.S. That was just after World War II. That made sense because if you think about the work environment we were in in the 1950s, it was very hierarchical. We took the command and control structure from Mm. the military that Mm -hmm. then went to the assembly line that then went to the office. And so I I always picture that 1950s row of people and you've got your little inbox and outbox and you are the cog. And your boss would say, here's a marketing project to do. It goes in your inbox and you come up with the slogan or whatever and you put in your outbox. And you just had to be a little cog that focused on one little area that was marketing knowledge or finance knowledge or whatever it was you did. But in the 70s, 80s, and after, we started to lay off middle management. We went to flatter organizations in the 90s and 2000s. We went to interdisciplinary groups. And I can no longer sit there and say, oh, you need to run a marketing campaign. You tell me what you need and I'll figure it out. Because now as a marketer, I'm working with engineers and product people and salespeople and finance people. Mm -hmm. And I have to communicate with them. I have to engage them using our different skill sets. I have to figure out, do we actually need a marketing campaign in the first place? Because there's no boss to tell me do it. The boss just says, get more sales. Mm -hmm. And so we need a different set of skills for today's workforce that colleges as well have not adapted to. I think they will in about 20 or 30 years but it's unfortunately very slow. And what, what will, what's going to, what, why do you say that? And what's going to prompt that change? Well, the reason it's slow is because colleges move at a glacial pace. (laughs) Yeah, they do. There's some, unless they're increasing in tuition. Sorry. (laughs) There's some benefits (laughs) to that, a lot of drawbacks. (laughs) Now colleges are getting a big wake up call. Because after COVID, everyone's saying, wait a second, what exactly am I getting for college? If you look at most universities, the primary cost is, I was taught this by a professor I worked with, the primary cost is the fizz plant. It's the dorms. It's Mm -hmm. the labs. It's the having someone mow the lawn. 
right? It's not someone standing there saying, let's talk about Shakespeare. That's relatively low cost. Right. Granted, some science universities, we do have particle accelerators that ain't cheap. <laughs> but for the most part, it, it's not the knowledge being transferred, it's the facilities. And in fact, we've yeah. seen, of course, we've seen that, oh, this school just got a brand new gym. Well, every other school that competes with that one, guess what, in the next 10 years, they have to get a brand new gym if they are staying competitive. And so that's what's driving a lot of costs. But students are trying to say, wait, if I'm just talking about Shakespeare, if we're having a discussion on Shakespeare, do I need to be on campus to do that? Can I do it remotely? If I think of my classes, my physics classes, other than the lab ones where I had to be there with some expensive equipment, mm -hmm. the professor would start the beginning of the lecture saying, here's where we left off and wrote an equation on the board. And for the next 55 minutes, he would just write, derive, derive, derive all these equations, fill up nine blackboards, and we'd sit there scribbling. I could have done that online. I didn't need to be physically there for it. Mm -hmm. So it's not clear the knowledge transfer requires all that physical infrastructure, but there are advantages. The students being semi-autonomous, moving away from home. It's the late night discussions where you form friendships and you talk about great ideas and those experiences, that's part of the educational process. Okay. It's joining the electric car team and building an electric car, which you can't easily do just sitting at home in the suburbs, yeah, that's how you can grow and learn. And so the question is, where do we find the balance of what we should pay for that versus just that knowledge transfer? And universities need to wake up to the fact that if they're just doing knowledge transfer, it will be hard to justify that cost. Interesting. And that's a, and, and you know, I think, I know that you're, uh, you operate you know, in your, in your, where you, where you teach and we've designed the program at MIT um, at the post-secondary level, but at the K-12 level as well, um, we, we are responsive to, usually actually we take our cues from uh, secondary, I'm sorry, post-secondary education. And we determine, you know, how many or what percentage of students have needed remedial courses once they've gotten into uh, into school. Um, how long is it taking them to graduate? So when colleges start to change, that usually does prompt change at the K-12 level um, as well. And I, and I, I wish I could say that um, the needs of the workforce uh, prompt that. I think they do, they prompt discussions and they prompt clubs and they prompt a course, like a required course, like a required STEM course or a required STEM program, but they don't really prompt, they definitely don't prompt uh, systemic change um, in the K-12 world for sure. Uh, because if they did, we wouldn't still be talking about 21st century skills that we're not really measuring in any real way at all. Um, in fact, we've gone, I think, pre-COVID, we had gone pretty far away from those 21st century skills uh, as far as how we measure them. So if we're not measuring them, then we're probably not teaching them because we're usually pretty concerned with how they're being measured. And they're certainly not measured on state testing. Um, I would argue they're not really measured on the SAT either. So where are those things being, where are they prioritized? Where are they measured? Um, and so usually our cues are taken from the post-secondary world. Um, when we are deciding what and how to teach uh, and what to include um, at the K-12 level. The, the challenge, as you point out, comes from a lack of direct signaling. It's mm -hmm. the workforce has to signal to higher ed, which then has to signal to K through 12. Mm -hmm. And each of those steps can take years, right? It right. took us a decade or two for the workforce to say, wait, these are the skills. A few people saw it early, but it took mm -hmm. one or two decades for them to wake up and see it. And then another one to two decades for higher ed. And then another one to two decades. That's slow. And right. then you have the problem of the street lamp effect, which is that we focus only on what we can measure. Mm. And so we ignore what's hard. This comes from, there's a famous joke. You have a, a drunk guy looking for his house keys. And he's mm -hmm. staggering around. And there's a police officer says, well, what, what are you doing? The guy says, oh, I'm trying to find my house keys. So they search the whole street for the next 30 minutes. And the police officer says, look, we've looked all over. Are you sure this is where you lost your keys? And the drunk says, no, no, I lost my keys two streets over on Maple Street. The cop says, well, why are we looking here? 
And Drunk says, well, there aren't any street lamps on Maple Street. I'll never find them there. <laughs> and a lot of organizations focus on what is easy to measure, and then they optimize to that measurement. Yeah. And so we need to ask ourselves, go back to the drawing board. What do we really need? Even if we can't measure it as well, I would take Absolutely. a so-so measure for the right thing and great measure for the wrong thing. That is a profound statement. It is. Um, we were there once in some segments, um, and then there was a massive turn away from it, uh, and education became boring. <laughs> um, teaching became a little more boring. Um, but yeah, that that's a profound statement. That you take something that we can maybe not measure as well, but that can you say? Do you remember what you just said? Because that was a really that statement was was profound. I'd rather. <laughs> exactly right. I remember. I'd rather. <laughs> I'd rather do an okay job measuring the right thing than a great job measuring the wrong thing. Yes. Yeah. Um. I that is a really great place to I think put a pin in that in this conversation about what's being taught or what's not being taught what the missed opportunity is and then what needs to happen in order for us to get to where we need to be in teaching those skills. Because now what I'd love to uh, shift into is to talk about, okay, so, so we're not teaching these things. Does this just mean that, you know, a student that, that somebody's not going to have a great marketing career or that they're not going to, you know, be able to necessarily get their footing um, in the business uh, field that they chose to go into. No, that's not, that's not all that this means. Um, because I think it has implications, especially in, in, uh, uh, in the, in the world of education has, it has implications for the, the workforce, especially as we think about, as we train teachers, right. To be responsive to the needs that ever changing needs of our students. Um, but also to be, uh, to, to train our, our leaders and, I know I, we taught, we, we spoke a few weeks ago and also I've, I've gone through a lot of your uh, material and I've listened to a couple of podcasts that you've been on. And something that struck me was you talked about how, you know, people may be, um, they get hired into a role, right? So maybe it's an entry level position with a company. Um, maybe they've changed roles, but it's, they've been lateral moves or they've maybe like been incrementally moving up. And all of a sudden they find themselves in a leadership position or in a leadership and management position. And, um, and, and maybe they haven't been prepared for it. Is that something that you see in your all work? All the time. The, the workforce just says, hey, congratulations, you've done a good job. You're at the next level. And they get little or no training. And the hardest step is going from individual contributor to first level manager. Yes. This is a classic Peter principle. You get promoted to your level of incompetence. Because if you think about it, you have, as an individual contributor, you were given this very small, narrow type of work, marketing campaigns or writing software or financial analysis. And if you do a good job, you get a slightly bigger piece and a bigger piece. And you get these big, complex projects. And then all of a sudden, when you go to that first level manager role, you might no longer be working on that first level project directly, you're managing other people. It's a completely different set of skills, but we never align people to it. We just said, keep doing what you're doing more, bigger, and that works for step one, two, three, but step four, you become a manager, that's a totally different step. And we don't prepare people for it. And what are the implications of that? Uh, you see a lot of people struggle and flounder when they take that first step. And in fact, I noted earlier that leadership, it's a skill that companies want to see. When they say that, they don't just mean we want to see more people at that level of director or VP. They want people day one to stand up and lead. That's a skill they want to see. I want to see it in the people I'm hiring right out of college, but people don't even understand leadership to know what that means. And they think, well, when I get that promotion, then I'll be a leader. Let me give you an example, going back to something you said a little earlier. We're going to do a little bit of middle school math because this is an education show. 
Yeah, let's do it. So I want everyone to imagine you have a rectangle that is four by 10, and you have to increase one of the sides by two units to maximize the area. We all know this one, right? We've mm -hmm. seen it in school. We've done yep. it. Some people probably hate it. Okay, <laughs> do you increase the long side or the short side? Feel free to pause the podcast if you need a moment yep. to think about it. Do you go from four to six or 10 to 12? Now, the answer is we go from four to six, and that mm -hmm. gives us 60. Okay, great. You all pass middle school. What does this have to do with skills? Well, let's think conceptually what happens. When you add those two units to the short side, those two units get amplified by the long side. If you put them on the long side, they only get amplified by the short side. So we, we take that short side, and it gives us a better return. Now, all of us have long sides and short sides. Most of us are encouraged to really focus on that long side. For example, I was good at math and science. And I said, oh, keep doing that. And I went to a STEM school. I went to MIT. I focused on physics. I got really good at physics. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm better than most people at physics because of that training. That long side got really long. But now imagine we're going to take a kind of stereotype example to illustrate this. Imagine that person who is perhaps a genius in some area. Let's take physics but can't communicate very well to other people. He's got brilliant ideas, but can't explain it to someone who doesn't have a PhD. We've probably all had students like that who are genius in some area, genius artists, genius at literature, genius at science, but just they don't know how to interact with other people. They don't know how to communicate. So they are this long, narrow rectangle. They have a very tiny area. And if we can just help this person communicate a little better, interact bear with other people, be better at building effective teams, not about being world-class at this, but getting a little bit better about helping that short side get slightly longer, you get a better ROI on that rectangle. You get a better overall capability in the student. But we tend to encourage narrow focus in people. And so what we want to do is for all of our students, build up these skills. We know, even when I was a student, they'd say, oh, we have to help you with some public speaking because we know you're going to do a little public speaking. And if you get a little bit better, we're not expecting you to be on the TED stage. Okay. It's going to help you in your career. And that's true for all of these skills. So we have to do better. The, what we do with public speaking wasn't that great when I was doing it. <laughs> and I hope we do more now with that and with these other skills. But that's going to give you a huge ROI as you upskill the students. Now, so let's say... Uh you know, we're, we are where we are right now. And so we have this missed opportunity over years and years of, uh, of, of education, right? Formal education at the college level. Um, and we are now in various, so we're, we're, we're 15, 10, 15 years out of college and now at varying levels of, um, I mean, some of us have gotten our master's or our doctorate where, I mean, well, I had incredible uh, applicable, um, I guess I would say coursework uh, where, I, where I went. And I, was, I think I was very fortunate for that. Um, but I'm aware of many others, you know, where it's a lot of just you sit in the classroom. And I don't know how you can learn to be a school leader sitting in a classroom. That doesn't make sense. I had a year-long residency. And I still was like, what is happening in my first year as a – oh, and my ninth year as a principal. Um, but, you know, that first year, I was like, wow, I did a whole year residency on this. And this is still really hard. Um, I don't know how you learn to do that sitting in a classroom. But, you know – people get different levels of their of degrees so that they can usually get promoted right to another level in, in, in the job and whether it's in the current company or they're trying to move companies. But if that's not being taught right now, where, what, do, what do we do? What do we do to, what can we do now or what could companies do now to help train? Um, or is it training? What do they do? Right. Great question. For a company or a school or a nonprofit or any organization, we have to recognize these skills are different than what we normally teach. And you noted that. You said you had a year of leadership classes, but then you showed up and you said, I don't know exactly what I'm doing because the book doesn't help. Now, it's important to understand what we teach, certainly a lot of K through 12 and even some college 
It is knowledge transfer. Here are the dates you need to know in the Civil War. Here are the causes. Remember this. You go like, okay, I'm going to write down these dates, right? 1861 to 1865. You're going to write down the quadratic equation. How do you know when to do what? Well, if I see a quadratic equation, I apply the formula. If I see a question about the Civil War, I remember those dates. It's very narrow and focused. And all you have to do is learn the knowledge. We might ask a little, you know, why do you think the North and South went to war at this time versus that? Maybe a little bit, but it's mostly knowledge transfer. Now, think about leadership, team building, networking, negotiating. There is no formula. There are no simple facts you remember. There's no algorithm or three right. steps you have to do to always be a great communicator. It is a lot more situational, and I would liken it to sports. So let's think about basketball. You would never say, okay, you're going to go to a class on basketball for a week, and when you come out, go and lead your team to the championship. We spend a little bit of time saying, here's what you need to know about basketball. It might be, here are the rules, or it might be, hey, here's what to do in this type of game situation. But then you drill, you scrimmage, and you watch tape. Mm. And so how do we do that? The best way to do it is through peer learning groups. This is how we teach at MIT for these skills. It's how top business schools do it. Another version of this is the case study that you might be familiar mm. with. So you want to get a group of people together. I recommend groups of about six to eight people, but there's ways to scale it up to 20, even 60, 80 people. And I've got some resources to help people do this. You get folks together and they say, okay, we are going to read some content. And sure, you can use my book and say, we're going to read these 10 pages and discuss it. If you don't want to use my book, pick another book. I list a lot of great ones on my website. Okay. Get some online content, read an article, watch a video, listen to a great podcast like this one. The point is you all have some common content mm -hmm. that's maybe half a chapter or a podcast episode, and then you come together and discuss it. You say, okay, we were talking about leadership, and here are some ideas on what you think, what I think. Oh, I have this leadership challenge. I'm thinking of doing it this way. Do you have any thoughts? And you say, well, I tried doing it here, and here's what happened. Because we can never scrimmage leadership in the workplace, right? I can't say, hey, everyone, I'm going to lead for an hour, and then, okay, Go back, you know, just kidding, undo. <laughs> yeah, right. But when we have these discussion groups, or if you use an actual case study, you're looking at a real world practical example, not just some theory, but here's the reality. Yes, you're supposed to just address this problem, but it turns out the other executive you have a problem with is the CEO's brother-in-law, and you can't just yeah. say this is a problem. Like, ooh, that's the reality. They didn't talk about that in the book. Right. And so it's in these discussions, that's how you actually scrimmage. If you use a case study, like a negotiation case study, that is how you drill. That's how mm -hmm. you practice something specific. Or you can watch the tape. We can talk about, hey, a circumstance that you had and what you do and what can I learn from it? So we need to think of these as how we learn sports. And here's the other thing, because companies will say, we're going to send someone off. You're a rising star. We're going to send you to this week-long leadership training program. That's one person once. You have to continually work on it. Because unlike the quadratic equation where you say, okay, I see I have to use it here, you don't know when you're going to lead. Five minutes from now, you walk into a meeting where there's a big problem. You have to lead. That was not yeah. on your calendar. Mm -hmm. So you want to create peer learning groups pick some content and have a discussion and do this on a regular basis. And the great thing is, first, this costs nothing. Right. Maybe the yes. cost of a book or subscription. Book. But yep. Yeah, you can use, again, a podcast like this costs you nothing. It helps create engagement among your yes. team, your employees, because now they're not just getting a paycheck. They're saying, hey, I'm upskilling, I'm learning. It fosters relationships inside the organization, which mm -hmm. we want. It helps keep this top of mind and it creates a common language because if you've all talked about this case study, all talked about this example, you can now refer back and say, oh, it's just like the challenger case study. It's just like the ever case study. Everyone's, oh, I know exactly what you mean. So yeah. you get all these great benefits at little or no cost. What if an organization doesn't have somebody who can, who's, who is, experienced in 
facilitating that kind of work? Or maybe a better question is, are there, what are the uh, implications for just jumping into work like case studies or, um, you know, going over dilemmas, like you said, you know, the, the, the practice scrimmage and, um, and tapes, it's a much higher, uh, there's more facilitation, right? Like you said, you, it's also free. <laughs> um, but are there any unexpected potentially or, or kind of hidden dangers in that? And then the second question would be, what what could some what could a manager or a company do if they feel like they're not ready to themselves to facilitate that? Yeah, good questions. I go through some of this in the documentation that's available for free on the website. Great. There are some things to think about. So one is, can you do this yourself? I'm part of a book club through my CTO group, and we just read the book and then we discuss it. And the handful of us, it's fine, we don't necessarily need a facilitator. Mm -hmm. So it might be your experience enough, you're okay. It might be you take turns, who's going to just lead the discussion. Mm -hmm. It could also be maybe you do bring in an outsider, it might be an outside professional, or maybe you have someone not part of the group who comes in to facilitate for a different part of the company. In fact, if you have, if you imagine you've got three or four groups of six to eight people, one person from each group volunteers to facilitate the other group's discussion. Mm. And so this way you just have someone whose sole job is just to make sure the conversation's flowing, not contributing, being very much a facilitator. So yeah. you can do this again, kind of in that homegrown, organic, low cost way. You can, across, of course, bring in a professional facilitator. You could even, what I tell startups to do, if they don't have enough people, Go, go do it with people from the another startup, right? If you're at a small school, find people from other schools. And remember, this can all be done online. Yeah. You don't have to be co-located for this type of discussion. Maybe yeah. for some of the case studies that might be more physical, but even then you could do a lot of it online. Now, there are some pitfalls. Okay. You don't necessarily want to have a discussion on management mm -hmm. with your manager as part of the team. Uh, right. So we do have to think somewhat about hierarchies. There might even be some other topics where it doesn't make sense to discuss it with your team, with your peers. And I recommend certainly for bigger organizations, you want not just this is for the engineers. This is for a finance this is for the salespeople. Take one engineer, one salesperson, one finance person, put them in a group. Right. And make these heterogeneous groups. Not only is it less awkward because, oh, these are your peers. And if you disagree, you're like, oh, now, now I know where she stands and it's different than what I yeah. think. But you get different perspectives, people who have different experiences and backgrounds and examples. And again, if your group is so small or there's only two people from your organization who wants to do it, create a local meetup group. Find other people from other organizations and do this outside of yours. It can be done. And I thank you for that. And I, I think, because I think, uh, or I, I shouldn't say, I think I know how critical um, this type of training is, right? And how beneficial it is to, um, to cultivate leadership in that, in that way, using those um, strategies, strategies or approaches, I should say, um, and tools. And also that there is... Um, some forethought and skill involved in being able to facilitate uh, and there's context too, right? And you, you mentioned some of that. So uh, I love the idea though of reaching out to other schools um, to see if there are like, like say there are three, one high school school districts, right? Across the state, or maybe there, maybe you're part of a professional network that, you know, you interact with, with other school leaders. Um, I mean, heck, I could put it out on Twitter probably and say, hey, you know, I'm the principal of this school. Because there are, you know, as much as Twitter sometimes can really not be the place for productivity, it actually can be uh, because there are a lot of people out there who do want to do better for their organization or want better for their organization who would, that's like a call to action. Like, hey, is any, anybody out there who would want to join us and create a group where we where we do this? Um, I think that's a really, really smart um, an efficient idea to reach out to other, other
organizations, other schools that might be small, but when you team up um, and, and then you're also learning from each other because they may have scenarios that you don't have and you hadn't imagined and it makes it, it, it brings something to light that you're like, oh, I could try that. Um, a lot of benefits there. Exactly. And again, this is what business schools do. When you go to a top business school, you have someone who's ex-military, another person who's a teacher, another person who did financial services, another tech guy, and they all come together and bring their perspectives. When you do mastermind groups, you're paying a lot of money for someone yeah. to facilitate a bunch of people at the same level as you to share ideas. Yes. So you can do this without spending that money or without going off to business school for two years. It's the same. My question to you is that that's, that's a question, but um, the bigger question I have for you is what would you say to a large school district that has enormous need in multiple areas um, and they are, they have money and they want to bring in experts, consultants in say curriculum or in, um, in, in doing an equity audit or in restorative practices and, and making sure we're, you know, our discipline practices and how we're um, being culturally responsive are, are what they should be. How can a district properly and adequately vet or interview these companies and make sure that they're not only going to get the return on the investment, but that they're going to have the investment of the stakeholders, which are the teachers um, and the trust involved. What would you say to that? Yeah, great questions. And certainly the basis of this is the fact that so often we teach people how to be a candidate. Mm -hmm. Here's how to answer, when did you fail or what are your weaknesses? But then we say, okay, now you're part of the team. By the way, go interview this other person. And I have met a number of executives who have hired many people who have had zero training in how to hire someone. And we always talk about, oh, people are our most important asset. But you have no training in how to find this valuable asset. Right. right? Would you ever say, hey, you're going to be a gold miner. I'm not going to teach you anything about mining. Go figure it out. <laughs> Right, and that's what we do for interviewing. Now, you bring up a similar topic, which is we say, hey, go do this. Go write a $5 million check to a type of firm you've never hired before okay. or haven't, haven't worked with or it's a totally different scale. So yeah. how can we be more effective when doing this? There's a couple different techniques. So first, you want to not just take the proposal, but you want to get references. Tell me about similar projects you've done elsewhere. And by the way, I'm going to call those companies or those school districts and ask how it went. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know, and this is true we're for interviewing. Oh, hey, okay, you like me. So, oh, you need three references? Here are three people who like me who agreed. Mm -hmm. Well, can I, as a hiring manager, go, great. Now I'm going to go through my LinkedIn network and look for other people we know who you didn't name. And let's see what they say about you. So yes, get their references and say, like, tell me about a project you've done and talk to the people who had that project. Yep. But then do some additional due diligence and ask around. And here's the thing. So we do this all the time in the CTO and the entrepreneur groups I'm a part of. Has anyone worked with this vendor? Can anyone recommend a vendor? What was your experience? We share information all the time. Well, teachers and school districts, you all kind of know each other, right? You know where to find right. each other. <laughs> yeah. So start sharing whether it's in calls you do with each other, whether it's on discussion boards, share this information. Mm -hmm. Now, a second thing you can do is potentially do a pilot project. When we do big contracts, we don't just say, oh, well, here's a $10 million contract. We phase it. We'll start with maybe a small pilot project. Okay, we're gonna start with a $250,000 project. And that might be a scoping project or that might be phase one, and let's see how things go. And by the way, if you don't do a good job, you're not getting phases two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. It could even be a good checkpoint for, okay, at the end of phase one, let's just debrief and figure out what worked, what didn't. Let's understand why it didn't. Oh, we didn't get you the materials you need on time. Well, mm -hmm. that's good to know. As we do phase two, can we address that? Are we going to have the same problem? That's something we can address. Mm -hmm. Or did you do a bad job here? You didn't understand our needs. Convince me you'll understand it better for phase two or you ain't getting it. Mm -hmm. The other thing you can do 
is bring in an expert. Mm. So I'm often brought to companies. They say, come on, be an advisor to the company or come do some consulting work. We need to hire a CTO, but none of us know how to do that. <laughs> you do. So I come in. Now, my scope is limited. I know I am not in the running for the CTO job, either because okay. it wasn't of interest in the first place or just by the nature of what I'm doing, I have to be unbiased. I can't, I can't be a candidate as well. Right. And I say, okay, well, let's talk about what do you need in a CTO? I, go, I don't know. Okay, well, I do. So let's talk about what's your business doing and what do you think this or that, which is more important? And I'd recommend this. What do you think? Here are some alternatives. And I help them understand this is what you're looking for. These are the things you might value because there's lots of different CTOs mm -hmm. who all bring value, but do you want this type or that type? Do you want the pickup truck, the compact car, the SUV? They're all great vehicles, but have different yep. needs. So let's mm -hmm. define your needs. And then I can help you evaluate. I can introduce people and see, are they technically competent? And mm -hmm. so putting a little bit of money towards me gives them that expert consultant that helps them make the best decision for them. Again, I am out of the running. So mm -hmm. you can say, we've got a $5 million contract. We're going to allocate thirty dollars to $50,000 to bring in a company that is ineligible to get yep. the big contract, mm -hmm. but they are going to help us create the valuation metric and evaluate those companies. And so that can help you spending a little money can help you more wisely invest the rest of it. I, you know, you mentioned that um, when we spoke the first time and I can't tell you how many times in the last couple of weeks I've used that example everywhere, not just in uh, actually, I haven't even, haven't even had that kind of conversation in the education space uh, in the past couple of weeks. But in so many other conversations, I'm like, listen, listen to what Mark said. <laughs> um, this is such an incredible recommendation because why wouldn't we spend or invest? I shouldn't say spend. It's an investment. Invest $30,000, $50,000 into an expert who understands exactly who's going to be able to go in and assess that need for uh, for the school district and be able to help them understand what they need, like you said, and then help them actually evaluate prospective um, vendors out of a $5 million contract, $30,000 is nothing to get, to get the right people in. And we do this all the time. My father subscribes to consumer reports. He spends a certain amount of money each year to have experts <laughs> help him buy a bare refrigerator or car or other thing. When we have financial advisors or investors, right? People pay, okay, X amount of money per year because you're going to help me pick the bearer of stocks. I mean, I can pick stocks myself, but not as well as an expert. And I'm willing to pay a little extra money for their expertise to get the better ones. Right. So this is something we've all done. And it's just doing it in a new context. Yeah, I love that. And I, you know, the reason I wanted to end on that was because I really do think that's actually a, uh, a move that schools, um, school districts, large school organizations, small school organizations, but a lot of times those contracts are a lot smaller, but these large, um, these large school districts that have so much need in so many areas, they couldn't possibly understand um, what truly is needed everywhere. So to do to that one recommendation right there, I think would be a game changer if, um, if we, as we talk about the changes that need to happen or the thought that needs to go in um, to education moving forward, that is something that could easily be done um, and could make a huge impact on the actual quality of the work being brought in to support teachers so that then um, our, our clients, our customers, our students are learning um, at higher levels. So thank you so much for that recommendation. You're quite welcome. Um, I also, I, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Before we end, uh, I am going to share in the episode notes, uh, you know, your website, um, so your resources, but I'd love for people to hear from you directly too. Where's the best place to find everything that you, if they want to find you, if they want to try to, you know, uh, book you or have a conversation with you, or they just want to see, they want to find the books that you've written. They want to find your toolkit. Um, where can they find you? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can see where to buy it, online, local bookstores. You can get in touch with me or follow me on social media. 
You can download the free app that has a lot of the content from the book. You can also go to the resources page and that has the very first download is how to create this development program completely free and we'll walk you through how to do it. And by the way, the copyright is open on that. So you can download and then bring it to your organization. Take all the credit, cross my name out, put your name there and say, look at this great idea I had, right? I am not a consultant trying to sell you by my process. I want you to succeed and I want to give you all the tools to do it. So you've got that free download. You've got a bunch of other downloads, including how to think through some interview questions, how to think about your own career plan questions. I reference a bunch of free resources online. I list a number of other books that helped me in my journey. So that's all on the resources page. I also have the blog where you can read what I put out every week. You can see me on other podcasts. Yeah. All of this is available on my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. Awesome. I am going to link that in the episode notes. I do actually encourage everybody to go visit that because in visiting that myself, I was able to listen to you on other podcasts and, you know, uh, read the things that you have. So I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to do that because it's very beneficial. I'll link it in the notes. Um, and I want to thank you so much for being with us today on this episode. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Take care. All right. I want to thank Mark so much for being on this episode with us. I know that you must have learned so much by listening don't forget to visit his website. I linked it in the episode notes. There is so much that he offers there for free as far as resources. And you can also find him on other podcasts and also subscribe to his weekly newsletter and blog. As always, thank you for joining us here on Dissect Dead Podcast. See you next week. Take care.